COP28 ended on Wednesday when an agreement was reached that included a commitment to transition away from fossil fuels as the world seeks to avoid catastrophic global warming. Critics say the agreement is too wishy-washy and too little, too late at this stage in the game. But those who helped seal the deal, such as Ireland's lead negotiator, Minister for the Environment Eamon Ryan, say it is an important, if imperfect, milestone on an incremental journey where consensus is hard to find. It is a historic day because it's the first time in 30 years we will have been addressing the source of the problem in this United Nations process, which is fossil fuels. Getting an international agreement among 193 countries will be significant in its own right. Just how difficult agreement can be was made painfully clear in an exchange between COP28 president, the UAE's Sultan Al-Jaber, and Mary Robinson, former Irish president, who butted heads over fossil fuels. We have not yet committed to phasing out fossil fuel. That is the one decision that COP28 can take under your presidency. And in many ways, because you're head of the Abu Dhabi um, National Oil Company, you could actually take it with more credibility. Uh, We do not, I'm not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. I am here factual and I respect the science. And there is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. When a draft agreement eventually emerged in Dubai, it didn't call for an end to the use of fossil fuels. Instead, it called for a reduction. That was rejected. And two days later, after late night negotiations, a stronger agreement was reached. We should be proud of our historic achievements. But does it go far enough? And what about Ireland's ability to hold up our end of the bargain? This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, I talked to Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, about COP28. Minister, in the introduction there, we listened to just a little bit of that exchange between the COP28 president, Sultan Aljabar, and our former president, Mary Robinson. It was, I think, by any measure, a remarkable exchange. On one side, Mary Robinson was standing up for the scientific consensus that fossil fuels need to go to keep the limit of 1.5 degrees warming in reach. On the other you have Sultan Al-Jabbar standing up, perhaps for his own oil interests. We know he's the head of a, a giant petrochemical company. But also, I suppose, for the world outside of Europe and the US, that, you know, doesn't like being spoken down to by, by the West. Did that interaction, in your mind, put fossil fuels in the spotlight for the entire conference? And did it impact then on how the COP played out? It did. Uh, I think the the interview, or the, the, it, that had been done, that conversation had taken place about two or three weeks before COP and it only became public in the middle of the process and it had a huge impact because it was always going to be the main story about how we phase out fossil fuels and um, Mary is so such a good advocate and is so highly regarded that, yeah, it it became for a period there in the middle of the process, the kind of uh, the the lightning rod for a lot of the discussions that were happening anyway. What I heard Sultan al-Jabbar say in his response um, was that phase out is inevitable and 
which it is, if we're to meet our climate targets and if we're to stabilize our planet system. So the question is how you do it. The question is uh, what phase basis. But it's clear it was significant in this COP that for the first time, that inevitability did become center stage and was agreed. You were the negotiator, the lead negotiator on climate finance for the EU. So you were behind the scenes. Um, So if we just talk about the first agreement, there was an early draft of the final agreement. That was on Monday, but it didn't fly. What were the sticking points? And then how was consensus reached? It was reached fairly quickly, but, but what were the sticking points? Um, the sticking point, main one, was a lack of ambition. There were a whole variety of aspects to, to it, and uh, that you know these these documents are in front of me here. It's about fifteen twenty pages, about a hundred uh, no, sorry, two hundred and forty articles. So it's it's a. Uh, it's complex, but it wasn't ambitious. It wasn't balanced. It had inconsistencies. I mean, and, and the personification of that was in this crucial, crit, critical article about phasing out fossil fuels. There was a could, and that maybe that was symbolic of what the was word in, could. The could. So you you could do whatever you want, and it once once put the word could in. But that was just kind of symbolic in a sense. It was interesting because that night, so it came out about five o'clock on Monday. We immediately, we'd been involved, I'd been involved in what was called the Higher Ambition Coalition. So that's a small of small group of countries that histor- typically come together in these meetings to try and push for ambition. It led by the Marshall Islands, a small island in the Pacific, also involving mo- a number of European countries, including Ireland, um, Colombia, Chile, small number of countries. That night, we went into immediate kind of what they call a huddle. So you all kind of um, come into come together. What's your response? And we were all dissatisfied. And it was interesting in the room that meeting. Uh, suddenly, you saw the UK came in the door, and literally came in the door. And everyone looked up and said, "Oh, oh, they're here," because they hadn't been at the previous meetings of the Higher Ambition Coalition. And the next morning. We met Antonio Guterres and he's always, I think, really inspiring in these events because he speaks in such clear, simple, easy to understand language. What he talked about was to us was about double ambition, ambition to reduce emissions, but also ambition to bring justice and development to countries that are currently in real difficulties because of climate and other reasons. And I think that helped. And then we had a further meeting of what this higher ambition coalition and what I really noticed is suddenly you see USA are in the room and Zambia is in the room and Bangladesh and Brazil. So now you've got country of Europe and, and small island states who tend to lead it. Um, but you've also got Latin America, North America, Africa. And that then starts to build momentum. Then you start. And what we were doing, is we spent a few hours talking about what are the principles we agree on? And can we bring those into, into the negotiations, which we did? And through that day, what day is today? <laughs> I forget the days. <laughs> that was Tuesday. Um, through that day, there were a series of consultations with the presidency, with the negotiating team. And by that night, we had a sense, yeah, we're going to get a good text. And, and in some ways, strangely, the fact that it had been so poor the previous day, people must wonder, how does that turn around? Well, in a strange way, when there's something that everyone agrees is not good enough, it helps you actually to, to raise ambition and to get something that was stronger. Not perfect, not everything we'd want by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly something we could agree to. And what did you take from the fact that the UK came into the room? Uh, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> Look, 
Well, not welcome, but you know what I mean. They hadn't been at the earlier meetings this this uh, at this COP, along with the US and Canada and Australia and others. So that was good. Building consensus is what this is all about. So they were... There was a cheer when they came into the room. So we'll get to the, the final agreement now. The final agreement was reached by Wednesday. And the key element, that part of the agreement that made all the headlines, as you say, is 20 pages, 240 articles, but in fact, one paragraph hit the headlines. The agreement calls on parties to contribute to transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Now, critics of the agreement were really quick to hop on the phrase transitioning away. And they argued that the tech should have used the stronger term phase out. And I'm conscious that since we started talking, you have been using the the expression phase out, but that's not in the agreement. So, In practical terms, what's the difference then between transitioning away and phasing out? I don't think there's much difference. I think phase out, in a sense, comes to an end point where there's zero. Transition away doesn't have that end point in it. But um, I I think, I mean, it's important we got the language for the first time historically recognising we do have to leave, start leaving the fossil fuels in the ground, stop investing. And that article... Our advisors, legal advisors and others said was equally strong and sufficiently strong compared to the phasing out any any of the previous language. But can I say, I I think actually some of the other 240 articles and they're some of the ones I was working on are actually more important because if you don't have the finance to be able to do this, if you don't bring, what did Antonio Guterres say, you have to have twin ambition. You have to ambition for development as well as reducing emissions. And I think it was interesting in that meeting I mentioned to you there where the High Ambition Coalition and the minister from Zambia representing the African Union said he only wanted to focus on three things. Means of implementation, means of implementation, means of implementation. (laughs) Action, in other words. Yeah. And and the ability for those 79 countries who cannot do anything at the moment because they don't, they, they, they cannot get the finance to make this change. And, and I think, so it's, I think the focus, yes, we need that language, be it transitioning away or phasing out. I don't think it substantially changes what the signal is. But what we do need to do now is to actually deliver the reduction through changing the global financial architecture, to changing the stopping the fossil fuel subsidies, to enhancing the ability, particularly in countries in lesser developed countries. And I tend to focus on that because if this doesn't work everywhere, then it doesn't work in my mind for anyone. Um, And what we need to do is to really work together on building the capacity of countries to be able to make the leap. So those language, I mean, that language is important about phasing out, transitioning, whichever word you want to use. But actually, the uh, before that or with that is the ambition, the commitment. We're going to triple electricity, renewable electricity. In Africa, we need to increase it fivefold. And it's developing the mechanisms to deliver that and do that is, I think, where the strength of the document is, it is the signals towards that future is what's important. I just want to read to you um, a Financial Times headline from Thursday morning. Big Oil welcomes COP28 call to move away from fossil fuels in, quotes, an orderly way. So they're positing that Big Oil is quite happy about what happened at COP. Um, And, you know, that makes you wonder, is, is there anything in this agreement 
that's going to stop oil and gas companies and the petrostates from investing in new extraction of fossil fuels. That's what we do need to do. There is more than enough oil available to us to cook the planet and we do need to stop uh, and that's why Ireland was also a founding member and at, at COP we led a lot of uh, press conferences in what's called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. And but is there anything in the document though that, that's, it, that's it? Well what I believe is that commitment to triple renewables and to double efficiency can kill a lot of the market for new oil products. In other words if we uh, switch to electric vehicles versus petrol cars, diesel cars. If we switch to photovoltaics versus gas-fired power generation, that allows you to kill the demand. That and and that's now within sight. We are we are seeing now the uh, financing of clean energy overtaking the financing of fossils. One of the things I was pushing for, and it didn't get it into all the, you know, as I said, the document didn't reflect all of, of all the ambitions we would have. But we started, Ireland presented a proposal at COP and before it at the European Union Council that we would start really forcing the switch of finance from fossil to clean. And I think what one of the ways we do this is target the finance industry and say, hold on a sec, what are you doing? Why are you offering the same low interest rates to oil and gas that we are to clean energy? And I think you do, it's those sort of mechanisms. Now, the Paris Agreement is not a legal uh, contractual arrangement where you can say, mm. we will sue you if, you, if the you finance do market yeah. don't change. But it does, it is backed up by, there is a change happening. The power, the, the volume of solar power is going to triple in the next three years, triple. And it's already, you know, massively expanded compared to what anyone expected. And I think it's the rapid deployment of those alternative, cheaper, better solutions backed up by government and other actions which de-risk the investment in the clean. That's how you do it. As well as countries like Ireland saying, we're not going to look for oil and gas anymore. We're not going to frack for oil and gas. And to look to expand that coalition. At our Beyond Oil and Gas meeting, it was encouraging. We had new countries joining, Spain, um, Colombia, Chile. We had new regions join, California, to say that they would do the same. So that's how it works. You try and build alliances, build consensus and change the market and all the financial in instruments towards this cleaner switch. Well, now, there are phrases in the, the document, in, in the final agreement, that look, you know, to a layperson, um, like hard-fought loopholes for oil and gas producers. Um, and they were heavily represented by lobbyists at COP28. One is, and this is the phrase, uh, phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. You were talking about, about money earlier. And the word there, inefficient, allows people, I think, to argue, well, our fossil fuels aren't inefficient. Uh, we've natural gas. So, you know, that should still be subsidised. Another term in the document is transitional fuels. Um, and that, I think, to a layperson, I think that is natural gas. Don't these terms, and we get back to that Financial Times headline there, don't these terms mean it's kind of business unusual for the next while, anyway, for fossil fuel producers? Well, that has to change. And um, there, there is change happening. If I can give an example of two countries, three countries, that with real challenge 
removed fossil fuel subsidies recently. Kenya, Nigeria and Colombia, three countries that are, are in economic difficulties. Um, but when recent governments come into power there, in all three cases, new governments come in, that was one of the first things they did. And that was really difficult. But one of the benefits of that is you can use the revenue you're giving to provide for subsidies to switch to support the switch to clean. And I think in this, the, what's changed in the last six months, there was a very important um, uh, climate event in Nairobi, the African Climate Summit, where they started to realize if we start looking at this as a development opportunity and we break the problems that exist which don't allow them to get financing for clean, we can actually make this as a leap forward. And I think that's our job now. Our job is to change the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the African Development Bank and others so that they can raise the finance to support the clean development. Yeah, but I mean, language like that in the document, is that not a salve to, 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 to the petrostates? Do they not I think, don't think right? It was, I don't think it's petrostates necessarily because you do have to get consensus on 200 countries. And there are a lot of petrostates, you know. Uh, there are a lot of countries that are current and, and a lot of poorer countries as well. In, in negotiating this, like even, for example, with the African Union, you realise there are a lot of countries in Africa who suddenly discovered oil. Uh, uh, large quantities. And we're going to say to them, well, well you're now a petrostate, you can't use that. that. And they say, well, it's like we've just come to development and, and now you're telling us we can't. It's, um, that, is, that is a complex issue to, that we have to manage and wind down. But we will have to do it. because. And I think it's not just at this COP. Uh, last, next year, we'll go back and look at again further some of the financing. But the one in particular I think is going to be important is the year after that in Brazil, where we have to get countries to bring their own national declared contributions. And every country is going to have to do that. And it has to be aligned, according to the, what we agreed in Dubai, with keeping a temperature increases below 1.5 degrees. And I think that's where you start to see, OK, are people using loopholes or are we serious about this? And in the intervening two years, unfortunately, what's likely to happen is the crazy temperature increases we've seen this year, the mad, uh, chaotic, damaging weather events that are starting to take hold around the world are likely to increase next year, unfortunately, because we're only going into the start of the El Nino year. That background that people are starting to see droughts and floods and tornadoes in Leitrim, that it can influence and also change. It's not just fossil fuel lobbyists who run the world. They don't. They they would not they did not want this text. They fought against a tooth and nail. They did not win. Coming up. Is Ireland holding up its end of the climate bargain? I continue my conversation with Minister Eamon Ryan after this short break. Now, I know you're just back from Dubai, so you may not have heard Mary Robinson. She was on Orti Radio on Thursday morning on Morning Ireland, and she praised your role at COP28 as a negotiator. Uh, she was full of praise for you. But she also said the overall ambition of COP needs to be 10 times greater. By not phasing out, um, fossil fuel companies can continue to make profits, continue to uh, put emissions into the air. And they talk about... And the fact that fossil fuels are only on the table now, with the world on the brink of catastrophe, shows how far behind the science, the politics really is. It, so is the COP system fundamentally not ambitious enough to save us, to save the planet in time. And one of the things we talk about is reform of the COP. 
much smaller COPs focused on the issues they should be focused on, which is negotiating the steps that are needed. You know, really pin uh, governments and corporations uh, precisely to what they need to do. And it is the only game in town in terms of global consensus. And you talked about the 200 countries. But are there other ways to deal with this emergency? Well, it's a ple- pleasure meeting Mary before and in during COP. And, and she's a brilliant advocate and I think she's absolutely right. Our, our scale of ambition is not sufficient in the political system. It, it, here, there, uh, every country. Um, that it relates to the issue about how we get public support for this change because change is not easy in terms of when we're looking at changing our transport system, our food system, our energy system. It has to be a change for the better, but even winning the public confidence and and understanding of that is probably the biggest challenge. And it's not impossible. And Ireland is actually not badly placed. We tend to be a country that have avoided this becoming the divisive issue it has in the States and elsewhere, where it becomes a toxic identity issue. That's the biggest challenge. Like, talk about COP being important. Yeah, it is. But when you've got a kind of a Fox News and others playing this as a kind of a divisive ratings gain kind of story, that that's a killer. Um, I think we do need to look at how the COP process works because it is very cumbersome, like the issue about where the what area, what countries are selected, and and the role of the presidency in this. And and I think the UAE did a good job in their presidency, uh, but but all relying on on kind of one country carrying the burden is a real challenge. I, I didn't hear Mary this morning on the radio, but um, someone sent to me that she was arguing for a smaller COP, and mm. I do I can see the logic in that in because some ways. Because how can two hundred countries agree? Oh well, no. You, well, in, well, Al Gore said in the first I, I'd meet with Al Gore during the week, and he was saying at the very first COP, the first item on the agenda: Do you allow for a supermajority, or do you go for consensus? And he, he said at that one, the kind of various other, Saudi Arabia and others said, you have to have consensus. And he argues that we're constrained by that. We are. Um, but I think it's not going to be easy to switch that. And I think um, the it's, it's interesting, even though certain countries may not have liked this text, there is a certain pressure when you get, as I mentioned, the scale of consensus building against around a text. It's very hard for one country to block it and stop it. Um, that's one issue. But the wider issue about what cops are like, I, I described or someone described it, it's like to try and imagine how big it is. It's the plowing championship to the power of five mixed with Davos. You know, it's it, it's a lot of the business community from all over the world come there and NGO community and academics as me and media, as well as the negotiators. So you have this tiny kernel of negotiators in kind of one tranche. And then you have this whole range of other meetings. Uh, I, I'd meet, I went to events during the week about health, about clean cooking, about all these kind of very... And actually, I think it has a place where where you get people from around the world coming to agree what they're going to actually do about it is not a bad thing. Now, the two are kind of strange. They run in parallel, but they're not really connected. But it's not bad that you have, because actually, come back to what you said, how do we switch off the fossil fuel finance and so on? Increasingly, business communities start to realize if you're not going in this direction, you won't be in business in 10 years' time. So they increasingly see, and also all the innovation, all the technology, all the best people are going into decarb. Like if you're a company and you're in a fossil company, you won't get the best young people in because that's not cool. 
that's not where the future is. That's not where you can walk in proudly on Friday night and say to your mates, oh, do you know, lads, I've just done a great deal. I've, I've, I've got a new bit of gas. We found something, you know. Whereas if you're there saying, we've just found a solution to help people have warmer homes without polluting, that's something you, you can be proud of. You know, our people in our transport system, they're the front line now. Farmers are in the front line. I mean, far from this being something that there should be antagonistic between clean and our environment and farming, it's the exact opposite. We can and will be, they will be the front line heroes in this, in the change we need to make. So, so if you have an event like COP, which is this huge meeting place, that's not a bad thing. But how the COP process itself works, I would agree with Mary. I do think we need to look at because it it's it's complicated and it's protracted and it requires consensus, which is a real challenge. But even changing that would probably require consensus, which is not going to be easy in the first place. Well, I was stuck last night. I was watching Sultan Al-Jabbar just after he delivered the final agreement. And he said, look, here's the final agreement. It's now up to countries, individual countries to to, to go implement this. So... I think we in Ireland, we need to face up to the fact that we're not great. Um, We're legally obliged to achieve a 51% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And that's only six years away. And in June, our own EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, said that we're on course for only 29%. Do you still think we can achieve our 51% reduction? by 2030. It's a huge challenge but there are those tipping points as I said when things start to turn you know what did Nelson Mandela say you never think it could be done until it's done and you can actually do it Um, I think actually in Ireland we're not badly placed for a variety of reasons firstly because Broadly, the public has not, we haven't divided on this. This should not be a political divisive issue. It belongs to every political party, in my mind, every section of society. And we've avoided that American trap, you know, in terms of it becoming a, a, divide, a divisive point. Um, when the ship is starting to turn in the first six but months. ships turn very slowly, yeah, Minister, you know. And, and we're a growing ship. Yeah, and, and we're a growing ship. We have an increasing population, increasing uh, economy. But in the first half of this year, we expect, we're looking at the figures, our re- emissions in electricity reduced by some 15%. We think that'll pl- play through to the end of the year. That's not small. That starts to speed up re- uh, reductions. And similarly in agriculture, which people always cite as the most difficult, um, our use of fertilizer, artificial fossil-based fertilizer in the last two years has fallen by, we think, about 27%. That's not small. That's almost a third we're getting to. And that's better for farmers because they're saving money uh, as well as protecting the environment. Transport's probably the most difficult. But there too, we are, we have a climate action plan. We'll be, sent, we'll be agreeing, subject to government next week, a further re- reiteration. We have the method to go there. It is, it'll only work if it's a better country, if it's more socially just, if it's more efficient, if it's more, if it's more secure. And it can and will be. Um, change, as I said, in politics particularly, everyone always says, oh, I want change. I, I'm for change. I'll deliver change. When you start delivering change, it ain't easy. You get a lot of vested interests kind of saying, I don't like, I mean, other people changing, not me or not my industry. But I think, I think we can do it. I think actually, you know, we're not there yet, but I think Ireland can actually show real, real leadership. Um, I think on the international stage, that's increasingly seen. A lot of people, 
uh, international are looking at some of the things we're doing and saying, well, that's interesting. You seem to... Yeah, but they must be looking at some of other things and thinking, Jeannie, what are they doing? Because earlier this week, we dropped six places in the Climate Change Performance Index. We're now 43rd out of 63 countries. And I, I think that's perceived as an influential index. And you have Friends of the Earth, they come out and said that the government is delivering incremental policy change when our legal obligations require an urgent transformation. Now, you know, this all suggests that other countries are doing much, much more than us, much more to tackle climate change. And, you know, as you say, we're making progress. But we just haven't grasped the nettle. Like, you know... Are we in any position to lead? I think, that's the case? I think we can. I think if you look at the details of that report as to why was that, I think one of the main reasons, and I don't disagree with this, is that it is our planning system and our grid system is is very slow. It is not easy in Ireland to build things. It's not easy to do things quickly. Um, typically, I mean, as trans- transport minister, I look at the way I see it, it takes us about 10 years to do a bus lane to get agreement on it and, and to put it through. It takes us about 20 years to get agreement on a metro and, and build it. If uh, It's it similarly uh, in terms of renewable power. We're good at renewable power. We are one of the leading countries in terms of integrating renewable power. But in the last two or three years, our planning system hasn't agreed. And, that, and often that's down to local government as well as national government. And we have a bill. It was just gone through. The second stage was completed yesterday to modernise our planning system. That's really important. We do in, in developing our grid, and grid tends to be because the, the transition is, is about electrifying everything, transport, heat, as well as power. And we do have to be quick in terms of building out our grid. That, again, is not popular. You know, you don't necessarily get what we want, a stronger electricity grid. When do we want it now? But that's what we need. So I don't disagree with the assessment that we need to improve that. I think we can. And I think, but the most important thing is maintaining our public support for that at the same time. That, you know, you can't force things through local government. You know, those decisions around how we put a cycle lane in, how we put a bus lane in, how we really make the switch to take transport, for example, that has to come from the bottom up as well. And that's why I come back to it's actually public support and public understanding. Yeah, this is challenging because it's a change, but it is the right way to go and gets us out of the gridlock, gets us out of the air quality problems, gets us out of the very expensive transport system we have at the present towards one that works. So I don't see it as impossible that we make this leap. I think we can and and will be good at it. I want to make a a connection between something your government colleague Tisha Cleavradkar said as he arrived at the European Council summit in Brussels yesterday, Thursday, um, and the climate talks. He said that the EU was losing credibility with the global south over its overall stance on what is happening in Gaza. Our inability to take a uh, stronger and clearer position uh, on the situation in Gaza, uh, I think, has undermined our credibility with the global south, with the Arab world, with Africa, with Asia, Latin America. Uh, And also, I think uh, there's a real strength of movement from young people. And he described that as a big problem. Do you agree with what he said first? And does that make it harder for the EU to lead at things like COP when the global south has the most at stake. I agree with them. We need to give a far stronger response to what's happening in Gaza as a European Union. I think Ireland has taken a very strong position within the Union and has sought to bring colleagues with us. 
that is starting to work. The first vote in the UN Security Council, I think there was eight of the 27 European countries would have voted in effectively for a, for a strong for a ceasefire and for um, much stronger uh, con- condemnation of what's happening by Israel. Uh, the vote last week, this week, sorry, it was this week, 16 European countries voted that way, double the number. And we need to push further. So um, absolutely, I agree with them. And I think... There is a connection. I, I think how how the how the Palestinian people are treated, how the, the need for the ceasefire is important. It is it is it's shocking and completely unacceptable. And I think we do we can't allow that impunity in effect uh, in in how the people of Gaza are being attacked. We need to stand up for those those people. Minister Ryan, thanks very much. That's it for today. For more coverage on COP28, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode is produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Monday. <laughs>